This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Conor Pope. Not everyone in Britain is happy to go along with the celebration of the royal family and its new monarch, Charles III, that has come following the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Like history tutor Simon Hill, who was arrested for protesting. They proclaimed Charles to be our only rightful lord and king. And I found that pretty hard to stomach. So I called out who elected him. And then security guard appeared sort of right in front of me, like nose to nose. And then the police interrupted, grabbed hold of me. They handcuffed me, they put me in the back of a police van. Some have put a lot of thought into their opposition to the monarchy. People like Dr Laura Clancy, a researcher at Lancaster University. I've never been a royalist, but um, kind of not bothered, which I think, to be honest, is a lot of people's opinion. And then as I kind of did this book, I've got more and more critical. (laughs) In her book, Running the Family Firm, Dr Clancy argues that media coverage of the royal family serves a hidden purpose. It draws attention away from the inequality in society that the royal family represents. You know, it avoids you asking questions about wealth. You know, if you're reading Hello magazine and it's got Kate taking the kids to school, you're not asking questions about how that was funded and who's paying for the monarchy. Today I talked to Dr Clancy about her views on the monarchy, its relationship with money and class and its future under King Charles III. Now we've seen the mourning and we've seen the pageantry and there'll be a whole lot of more of that coming in the days ahead. But I suppose that's only one part of the picture. Another, perhaps bigger part, is the money behind the crown. So maybe we could start there, Laura. Just how much is the royal family worth? Well, that's actually quite a difficult question and that should be an easy question. Um, But it's really difficult to kind of answer that with numbers because um, there are so many different versions of what that looks like. So, for instance, royal wills are kept sealed, so we kind of never know what's passed on personally between different people. So that makes that quite hard to calculate. You, of course, have the sovereign grant, which is the official funding, um, which is calculated from a percentage of the Crown Estate's profits. Then you have things like the duchies, for example, that will then fund particular activities. And then you have things that they own personally that we don't really know about. Then you have things that the crown owns, so like the crown jewels. Um, So all of those things make it really quite hard to estimate. And I mean, I've seen estimates that have ranged from the hundreds of millions to the hundreds of billions, like huge disparities, just because it's so hard to actually estimate that because it's not public knowledge, really. I would suggest that the higher numbers are probably more accurate. Mm. Um, but there's so many things that it just, you can't calculate it. And then there's really interesting things like brand yeah. finance did a calculation of like the royal family as a brand. And then you think about worth and value and all of that kind of thing. So, and where does that come in? And it just becomes a whole minefield, I think. Well, I suppose it's safe to say that whatever they're worth, it's a lot. Definitely. <laughs> Now, there's also a perception that the British taxpayer funds the royal family. Is that the case or where does all this massive wealth that they have come from? So that myth comes from, um, well, it's not a myth, actually, it is true. So the sovereign grant is money that they say it's calculated from a percentage of the Crown Estate's profits. So the Crown Estate is a property, is a portfolio of land and property that is owned by the Crown. So it's not owned by the Queen, it's owned by the Crown that kind of operates as a corporate business. So you've got a CEO and blah, blah, blah. And then that money goes to uh, the government and then the government pay the monarchy. If the monarchy didn't exist, that money would be public money because it would have gone to the government. So that's where it kind of comes from, that the, that the public could pay for them, essentially, because they're 
without them, they would be getting that money, if you see what I mean. Um, so, and then there's disparities around that as well. So there's the money they get yearly. Okay. And then there's also kind of extra money that's often added on. So a few years ago, there's reports about them getting an extra 10 million a year to um, resurface Buckingham Palace. So we, we might know how much they're actually worth, but do we know what the sovereign grant is? Last year, it was £85 million. And that was included in the resurfacing of Buckingham Palace. Now, during his accession ceremony last weekend, King Charles said that he was returning his wealth to the state and in return he would get an annual stipend, which I presume is the sovereign grant, to manage his affairs. Now, I'm paraphrasing him there. Yeah. On the surface, that seems like a fairly generous move. But what does it actually mean when he does that? It seems like a generous move, but of course his wealth was coming from the Duchy of Cornwall and he's no longer the Duke of Cornwall because... Prince William has moved into that place. So as monarch, you can't then take the money that he's previously been taking from that. Um, And you would, of course, get all the wealth that comes along with being monarch (laughs) that would be immediately passed down from the Queen as well, which is probably a lot more. Okay. Um, So it's it's more at the change of hand, I suppose, rather than actually being generous. I think lots of these things are framed as being generous. So, for example, like them saying they'll pay voluntary income tax is framed as being generous. Mm. When, of course, the rest of us pay income tax all the time. (laughs) How does the monarchy manage its money then? I mean, is it a business like a normal business like Apple or Amazon or whatever it might be? And does it pay tax like the rest of us do? In some ways, it is run just like a business, I would say. So in terms of kind of... um, how particularly how the duchies and the crown estate have kind of addressed professionalizing essentially with different managers and different kind of things of property in some ways it's much more than a corporation of course so i think what's interesting is is a comparison around tax and the paradise papers one of the biggest ever leaks of offshore secrets well they are known as the paradise papers and they reveal the tax affairs of rich and powerful people around the world They've been so the paradise papers announced that the duchy of lancaster had been putting money into offshore mm. uh, tax holdings in order to avoid paying tax the duchy of lancaster which is the queen's private estate invested around 10 million pounds offshore some of the money and in that report was also people like um, apple for instance i think nike were in there as well so they're kind of using exactly the same processes right to kind of avoid paying that tax money but of course monarchy is also avoiding tax through legal loopholes that the monarchy is exempt from so they're exempt from corporation tax for example so they're kind of merging this way that kind of global conglomerates and multinational companies are using offshore tax and all these things to avoid it. But they're also using their own kind of loopholes that are left in president, essentially. They are like a corporation in lots of ways, and I think that's a really useful framing. But they're also much more than a corporation as well. Now, in your book, you mentioned that Prince Charles, as he was then, was like this massive landowner in the UK. Like, what kind of holdings are we talking about there? I mean, how much land does he own and where does it all come from? So when Prince Charles was the Duke of Cornwall, which is not anymore, he owned the Duchy of Cornwall. So that's, I mean, they own huge swathes of land in Cornwall. They also own kind of foreshore uh, forests throughout the UK, various areas of London. I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds of acres of land. So the Duchy of Cornwall is passed down through the heirs to the throne. 
and it has been since the 1300s. Um, what Prince Charles, did, which is slightly different, is he kind of professionalised that business. So he hired ma- managers, for example, and people who were kind of in CEOs of companies in order to essentially be entrepreneurial with it in order to kind of, kind of maximise that profit. So, for example, they added on um, Dutchie Originals, which is a food brand, um, in order to kind of diversify their portfolio. And now you can find Dutchie Originals in all branches of Waitrose. And right now, there's 25% off new Dutchie Originals. So you can see how kind of this very historical kind of landed gentry version of what the monarchy is in terms of them owning land has been professionalised into the, like, these corporates, um, these massive kind of corporate conglomerates. It's, it's funny because when you talk about the, the monarchy, you don't tend to think of it like a corporate conglomerate. And in fact, I think didn't Prince Harry and... Meghan Markle get mocked by many people in the UK yes. for commercialising their royalty. So follow and listen for free only on Spotify. We'll meet you back here soon. Happy holidays. Cheers. But it seems like that's what the, the British monarchy has been doing for a long, long time. Yeah, and I think that was really ironic, actually. So when they originally left and they were doing all those deals with Netflix, everyone was saying they were cheapening the brand. And it was Meghan, of course, who was being blamed because she gets blamed for everything. Um, you know, cheapening it and they were Hollywoodizing it and all the rest of it. And then, of course, you know, there's Prince, well, then Prince Charles, who was doing Dutch originals. People like Zara Phillips have deals with Rolex, for example. So I think Meghan and Harry were the scapegoat there for kind of, you know, hiding all of these various financial efforts that they all do anyway. Is there something about the monarchy and money that they try and distance themselves from? They don't want to be like associated with crass commercialism because they're above all that. Yeah, and I think they have to be. It's very rare you see the monarchy being associated with like the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, for example, (laughs) even though they're kind of, you know, elites, right? They are the richest people in the world. Yeah. And that's, yeah, it's on purpose because they don't, if, if we started thinking of them like that, well, there might be questions then about what, what the purpose of them is and why we still have them. Actually, what they want to be associated with is charity, is kind of these, these discourses of ordinariness and just like you and all of this that kind of circulate, service, duty, all of those words. Um, you wouldn't want to be associated with business and corporate, and corporate power because otherwise people are going to start blaming you, like they blame people like Mark Zuckerberg for things that are going on in the world. I suppose a supporter of the royal family might be listening and thinking, so what? The royal family are rich, but that's appropriate for the first family of the nation. We think it's worth that. And anyway, it does no harm. What impact does it have outside of costing the state a bit of money? I think it does have an impact because, you know, there's this saying that the British are obsessed with class. And is it any wonder if we have that kind of built into our system? So I think kind of my argument is that, you know, they enshrine inequality, essentially, and they enshrine that system. So, you know, any other inequalities, there's like a legitimation going on almost, I think, and kind of a, a subservience going on that kind of seeps into ideology and stuff. So I think I think that for me is the, as well as like taking taxpayers' money and all of that, but it's also about kind of ideology, I think, which is important. What shall we say of that greatest of all royal events, the coronation? Then indeed is the British monarchy on show to the world. Then indeed the British people let themselves go in unrestrained jubilation. From this remove, from this republic, we tend to look at the monarchy and the royal family as this weird anachronistic institution that has real that has no real place in the modern world. But is it wrong to look at it as a quaint anachronism? 
And does that do it a service and maybe muddy the waters a little bit? I think it does. I mean, I get where that comes from. And in, in some ways, it's true. Uh, in lots of, you know, when you see them on the gold throne sat in parliament reading out a notice about food banks, like that is so obvious in that moment. But I also think that can be a little bit unhelpful because I think if you dismiss them as archaic and not relevant anymore, then you're kind of not addressing the issues and you're kind of making it seem like not an issue today. So I kind of think it's perhaps more useful to think about them. That's why I kind of use the term of a corporation, because I feel like it almost modernises the kind of language we use around them. And it helps us to think about inequality more broadly and think about, you know, world inequality and how that might be rising, you know, global billionaires, et cetera, et cetera. And thinking about the royals position within that rather than just dismissing them as some quaint kind of side project in terms of class inequality. We ran out of food. We, we absolutely ran out of food at this food bank. Um, and I was shocked in some ways, but in another, no, this is something that I, I, I should have expected because our list has become so overwhelmed um, and people are reaching out so much more. A week ago, this was empty. It was completely empty. How have they managed to separate the money from their brand? The media. I think is the, is the answer to that ultimately. So I think, I mean, media representation has always been absolutely central. So even if you think of like portraiture, for example, of Henry VIII. But I think nowadays, um, these kind of images of an ordinary family are really important. So the most obvious example of that is like the Instagram accounts, particularly of like Kate and William. By the way, you'll be careful what you say now, because these guys, they're filming. I know. <laughs> Them as like this ordinary family, you know, taking the children to school and so on and so on. And it's about, I think it's about different audiences as well. So I think for like younger people, I think if they didn't have social media, they'd have a real problem because where else do younger people access the monarchy? Shortly after Buckingham Palace announced that the Queen had died at Balmoral Castle in Scotland on Thursday, the official Kensington Royal Twitter account and Instagram accounts were updated as belonging to the Duke and Duchess of Cornwall and Cambridge. Those young people will eventually be the whole population. So you kind of need to get them on side now. Um, and I think that's that, that's absolutely key. And also, if you think of, I mean, the mainstream media in the UK is largely uncritical and will kind of report um, the philanthropy and, and the charity work and, you know, the, all these words. And we've, we've had a lot this week, actually, about service and duty to the, to the nation and repeating those kinds of words. I mean, that distances them from corporation makes them you know it makes it central to national identity it makes it central to who we are and all of those things so i think that i think there's lots of quite contradictory things actually being held together so on the one hand you've got this idea of them as an ordinary family and just like us mm. on the other hand you've got this idea of service to the nation and how special they are um, and those things are kind of all being held together somehow um to kind of avoid talking about wealth and money essentially Now, I think it's interesting that they've been described in the past and I think you've described them as, you know, the longest running soap opera in Britain. And in fact, given the popularity of The Crown, it could be argued that it has become an actual soap opera as well as a metaphorical one. We have all made sacrifices and suppressed who we are. It is not a choice. It is a duty. Do the royals benefit from that characterization as a soap opera? And like, is it to their benefit that we're all looking at who's marrying who, who's feuding with who, what kind of relationships all of these people have with each other? Yeah, absolutely. The royal soap opera quote is um, from Rosalind Coward, so I won't take credit for that. It's an amazing quote. <laughs> but um, it's certainly, um, it's really, I think that's really important. I think you can see that always. And I think, you know, in lots of ways, this idea of scandal just adds to the 
institution because if you're following personal dramas so for example Diana in the 90s Megan more recently again you're not asking questions about the institution um, I think Andrew is a really interesting example of that I know it's slightly more serious than just gossip you know what we're talking about with Andrew but how he's mm. being kind of dismissed as the black sheep of the family um, rather than kind of engage with structural issues of power and privilege they're just kind of dismissing him as a bad as you know a bad apple um, and I, I'm not sure that's kind of that helpful in terms of that kind of circulation so in lots of ways I think that's again a very successful diversion tactic. I think in the in the famous interview that Meghan Markle and Prince Harry did with Oprah Winfrey there was that bombshell revelation about racism within the royal family and the conversation in Britain quickly moved away from that and moved on to a feud between Prince Harry and Prince William. Do you think that was kind of intentional or do you think that was orchestrated in some way? I don't know the answer to that for sure. But what I would say is that um, all royal media is orchestrated <laughs> and choreographed very carefully. And, you know, what they said. So I've done, I did a project where I did interviews with the royal correspondents. And they kind of said, you know, what the monarchy is very good at is just saying no comment, no comment, no comment. So you can't ever write a story about it because you can't ever get, you never get a denial even, you just get no comment. So I think partly there's kind of the influence of that. There's also the fact that a lot of them told me when I interviewed them that if you, if you're, you know, too critical of them, you might find yourself hitting a brick wall later on. So essentially that you won't get access that you need. So just thinking about whether that, you know, these kind of unspoken rules mean that the particular topics are not covered. She set an example of selfless duty, which, with God's help and your counsels, I am resolved faithfully to follow. How significant do you think the accession of Charles to the throne is? And do you think it'll change how the firm is perceived by the British public? I mean, I think what we're seeing is the affection for the Queen and kind of the respect around this moment of the funeral, which, you know, it's a funeral. Yeah, of course. Um, is kind of being... So the accession is very much part of that story, which I think is interesting. So they're kind of not separate. So I'm thinking particularly of the BBC coverage, right? They'll flick from coverage of the Queen's coffin travelling and then they'll flick to Charles signing his accession in Wales or whatever. So how there's kind of two things are kind of part of one narrative. So how that then affection for the Queen then transfers onto Charles in quite interesting ways, I think. I think you can see that in slightly more pernicious ways as well. So there's been quite a few reports this week of people who have kind of shouted at Republic at, at, at these events. They said mm. Someone said, not my king, I think, in one, I think that might be in Scotland, and got arrested for um, disrupting the public peace. So that, that's, you know, that's obviously much more overt. And actually that, it's really interesting because that actually goes against a lot of what I've been arguing about. So I've kind of said, you know, they're more into this kind of soft power and representation. Well, if you are actually arresting people, mm. <laughs> that's actually a very different version of power that's kind of still seems to be in operation that, of course, we wouldn't want to admit because it's direct challenge to free speech and all of this. So... Um, I think I think there's lots of things going on. I think it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. It'll be interesting to see what happens after the funeral when some of that kind of talk about the Queen ends. Yeah, I think it'll be an interesting few years, I think. There was one striking element of recent days and that's how social media portrayed King Charles's relationship with pens. And he's got into awful trouble with the pens on a number of different occasions. I wonder, is there a risk that he's kind of out of touch with that younger audience and he's going to be caught out with these memes and these mistakes that he's making? 
Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that they've come out so quickly because, like, we never really saw that throughout the Queen's 70 years. No, never. <laughs> so the fact that two of these have happened in a week is, yeah, quite surprising because they're normally much more careful with what they film and what they let out. I think, I think it is a risk. I mean, I think it's dangerous. He's not, Charles isn't hugely popular anyway or hasn't traditionally been. I wonder if that will have changed this week, actually, if someone does a poll. Um, but those, particularly those kind of very quick videos that can be very quickly shared, very quickly reproduced, I, I think that is potentially quite dangerous. Mm. Um, and it's something I wasn't expecting, actually, because everything that comes out of the, the palace is normally so staged and so careful. So for these two things to happen, I think, is, is really quite interesting. And I suppose, finally, then, the big question is... What future does the British monarchy and the royal family have? And do you think it does have a a, a future that will last the ages? I do think Charles as king will change the discourse. So I do think that it will become less taboo to say that you're a Republican, I think. Um, because Charles is not as well liked. And there isn't that kind of affection and history and nostalgia that there was attached to the Queen. It doesn't quite operate in the same way in terms of national identity. I don't think this is something that's going to happen overnight. I think we're probably a way off. Um, and I think that it'll take much more than, than this to do it. But I, I do think, and you can start to see it a little bit in some areas of the media, that, that more conversations will start happening. It'd be interesting as well, I think, what happens in like Scotland and Wales, for instance. So they've always had lower approval ratings, particularly in Scotland, is a much lower approval rating. Um, so what will happen there as well, I think. I think that's probably the most interesting thing in the immediate future. Um, and then we'll see kind of what happens with England as well. That's it for today. This episode of In the News was produced by Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan. We'll be back on Monday.